0: Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the podcast that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this week we are talking about beloved Canadian author, Lucy Maud Montgomery.
1: Now, Lucy, also known as L.M., was born on Prince Edward Island in 1874. When she was 21 months old, her mother passed away and her father sent her to live with her maternal grandparents, much like the protagonist of her
0: most famous novel, Anne
1: of Green Gables.
0: Or Anne with an E, which is the Netflix series, if you've only ever watched that. (laughs) Like me. Like some
1: people. (laughs) Um, Lucy was a very imaginative child. By the age of nine, she had started writing poetry and she was keeping a journal And like so many writers that we cover on Bonnet to Dawn, she worked as a teacher, but always truly like what she wanted was to write. Montgomery was a prolific writer. She earned a little money by publishing poems, short stories, and essays in British, Canadian, and American magazines. And after a solid round of rejections, her book Anne found a publisher in 1907. Over the course of her life, she published 20 novels, 530 short stories, 500 poems, and 30 essays, which is quite the catalogue. I feel like she's up there with
0: Frances Hodgson Burnett, really. Yeah, that's a lot. I think it's the 500 poems that might tip her over the edge on some of them, right? Because some of, like, you've got people who have written, like, a lot of novels, a lot of short stories, Mm -hmm. but then that poetry. That poetry. That's and Louisa that's quite May Alcott as well. Long bibliography. Yeah.
1: and those three too, like
0: really cross the sort of like children to adult markets and as well. I think transnational narratives, maybe less Louisa May Alcott on that mm-hmm. one, but definitely Frances Hodgson Burnett and um Ellen Montgomery. We have heard
1: you guys, Lucy Maude Montgomery, is one of our most requested authors, and um. You know, I'm I'm sorry to say that she's someone that neither of us had really read up until now,
0: but we're catching up to speed. And here we are. I read like an essay and I watched the Netflix show. So, you know, the train has left the station. We're on we're on track. We're going somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I've bought my ticket. I feel like I see you're on the train and yeah. I'm like, oh, hey, I'm just um, getting a little snack, just in the pumpkin cafe, getting a little Cornish (laughs) pasty. Yeah, I mean, there's still 20 minutes before it departs. It's fine. (laughs) Calm down, you've got our seats. Yeah, so we've, we've been circling her for a bit and I do think it's fitting that we're introducing her during this literary tourism season because she is often described as being a regionalist writer, which means that the people, the history, the landscape of Prince Edward Island, they are all featured really heavily in her work. And like a lot of the place names are place names that she used for things as a child. And um, also a really fun thing in the Alpine path is just that she says that she writes a lot about the places she knew, but the people were all fictional because people kept like recognizing themselves. She's like, that's not true. So another good reason to, to read it because like George Eliot absolutely just wrote about people she knew. <laughs> So another reason that we wanted to tackle L.M. Montgomery now is because we heard about a really cool project, which is being run by two scholars who are studying Montgomery's international appeal just by surveying readers to see how they discovered her writing. So today we are going to talk to the women behind the project, Your
1: L.M.M. Story. I keep wanting to put a third M in there. You should do it. I, I probably will do it, guys, just just to let you know. Dr. Trina Frever is a tenured professor turned fiction writer. She specializes in the intersection between oral storytelling, music, visual media, and print fiction. She has presented at over 30 international conferences in locations ranging from Florida to France and published her work in an array of academic journals, including the Tulsa Studies in Women's Literature and the Journal of the Short Story in English. You can find Trina at her website com. that's T-R-I-N-N-A, F-R-E-V-E-R.com, or Trena underscore rights on Instagram, where she is very active.
0: And Dr. Kate Scarth is the first chair of LM Montgomery Studies at the University of Prince Edward Islands, LM Montgomery Institute. Uh, her research focuses on place and fiction. She's particularly interested in urban and suburban fiction which is also the topic of her book project, Romantic Suburbs. Her captivation with literary places extends to Atlantic Canada, and her work on this region includes the project Halifax's Literary Landmarks. She has published in various academic journals, including Women's Writing and European Romantic Review. And you can find her at katescarth.com or at katescarth on Twitter.
2: With that said, may I plug for a little bit part of the reason I think you should go read Anne of Green Gables? Mm -hmm. Because I personally, I I did not read it as a child. Mm -hmm. I read it for the first time as an adult. I might give you my full LMM story later. Uh But I think it's misguided Mm -hmm. to consider Montgomery only a children's author. She Mm -hmm. writes child protagonists beautifully, and I understand why she gets commended for that and why children respond to it. Mm-hmm. But I really think of her both as a regionalist and a humorist. Oh. And I think for adults reading her for the first time, many of them have the experience of, oh, I didn't know it would be so funny, or I, right. I didn't know it would be so relatable, because she's so often billed as a children's writer, which like I said, I think is a little bit of a misplacement. And do you think, I mean,
1: we run across this a lot on the show too. And I also, I used to be a children's editor, but now I I do Um, children's writing, uh, which I was cornered into, honestly, not what I set out to do. (laughs) (laughs) But do you think that is to um, gender? Do you think that was because she is a woman?
2: I think she gets marginalized in a number of different ways. And one of them... And and I'm a huge fan of children's lit. Mm -hmm. I write children's lit. I read children's lit for fun. Mm -hmm. I'm an advocate of children's lit. I don't think there's anything less worthy in children's lit than in any literature. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I would hold my favorite children's writers up against any quote-unquote classics of traditional literature and consider them just as strong. Mm -hmm. But I think many critics, readers, I'm going to say non-readers in the sense of people who haven't read her but want to comment on her works mm-hmm. tend to dismiss her either as a children's writer or a writer of, you know, cute little stories for women. Right. And I think those two things intersect. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How to
1: Suppress Women's Writing 101, I think. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Oh, we could mm-hmm. talk for a long
3: time about that. Kate, did you <laughs> want to jump in with anything? Well, I was just thinking like, and it goes back like, you know, to Montgomery's own lifetime, um, mm-hmm. modernist um, critics like like this uh, deacon, William Arthur Deacon, who uh, in Toronto, who's was really trying to make him a name for himself as the, the up and coming, you know, critic of Canadian literature. And so he kind of set himself up In the literature that he was kind of advocating in opposition to Montgomery. So she really became the scapegoat um, for what he was pushing in terms of, yeah, like realism and gritty modernism. So um, yeah, this is something she had to contend with um, in her own lifetime and early on. And I was thinking too, you know, Trina, when you mentioned non-readers, it also made me think, like, it's interesting how Montgomery and Anne are seen on Prince Edward Island because (laughs) on one side, You know, so the economy is run by tourism. um, And so a lot of people do appreciate kind of the cultural and economic. Benefit um, that Anne and Montgomery bring to the island, but you know, on the other hand, there's a lot of eye rolling and even the really cringy reaction. Like people will have, you know, come say to PEI from Japan or you know Mm -hmm. elsewhere far away. They'll have saved up for years and then they meet people on PEI who are like, "Really, you came all the way here for Anne?" And it's yeah, it's pretty disheartening. So, and I think you know, part of it is goes to the over commodification um, of Anne as well. But uh, oh,
2: I I hope we talk about that in a minute. because, oh yeah, yeah I absolutely. Some, I, I enjoy some of the funny stories about the over commodification of Anne, but I also yeah. wanted to jump in on the whole um, critical response to Montgomery in her time. I'm so glad you brought that up, Kate, because I find it so paradoxical that, of course, now we look back on many of the women regionalists writing in that time period. And I do a lot of work on the women regionalists. So I love Willa Cather, Sarah Orne Jewett, Kate Chopin. And I see Montgomery very much doing something similar. And Mm. of course she read all of them and I hope to do some work, published work on that soon, that she read all those writers and she responded to them in her work. And, Mm. um, and now we call them regional realists. Now we see that as actually an mm-hmm. aspect of realism, what they were doing, and and yet at mm-hmm. the time period, yeah, it was set up as a dichotomy, as Kate said.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah yeah, for some reason, domestic female sentimental stories were not, not realism. And Munker real. jokes about it, right? Like about, right. Um, oh. you know, they want me to put pig styes. <laughs> that right.
2: I but, love, she has one great quote that I don't know exactly that she says and, and it's something as a literary scholar, I completely agree with that. She says, they asked me to I'm gonna, I'm paraphrasing. They asked me to look in the backyard that has an outhouse and to only see the outhouse. And she said, but I see the flowers, I see the vegetable patch, I see everything else too. And I thought that that was such a great response to the kind of, you're not being gritty enough criticism.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot more to the world. And then she has Anne say that to Mr. Harrison, right? Right. Anne of Avonlea, something along those lines.
1: Now, I'm curious, how did you two
2: meet? We haven't. Why? We've never met in <laughs> person. <laughs> um, I sent in a video for the 2018 conference, mm-hmm. and Kate contacted me after the uh, seeing the video as a potential collaborator.
3: Oh, wow. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, so this video, and you can actually see it on the Journal of L.I. Montgomery Studies, which is an online journal that the L.I. Montgomery Institute, um, where I work, um, has just launched. And so Trina wasn't able, unfortunately, to come to the conference, but sent us a pre-recorded presentation. And it was amazing. Like, she had audience participation, and she wasn't even in the room. <laughs> people were just so, yeah, it was amazing. I, and I studied. People- May I jump in for a second? Yeah, go ahead. I study
2: oral storytelling and oral history. So for me, oral literary, if those two things can be said together, oral narratives, maybe that's the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. I study oral narratives, so I always try and get call and response in everything I do.
3: But anyway, go ahead, Kate. Yeah, it was impressive. And uh, and so Trina introduced this idea of the Ellen Montgomery origin story. And Trina, you can talk more to that. But she had, uh, people just got really excited um, about this idea. And then Julie Sellers, who's actually a Spanish lit prof, um, who comes to the Montgomery Conference. And that's kind of a sidebar. That's something I love about the Montgomery Conferences, is that it brings in people who are not necessarily Montgomery scholars or even academic and in julie's case she studies cervantes and she's written this paper for the montgomery journal on Don quixote and anna green gables um so julie said wouldn't it be so great if we actually started collecting origin stories and so i reached out to trina about this idea and then yeah there we we go. from there it's so
1: funny because like we work with a lot of different literary societies and whatnot and um you guys are the only one doing this. This is like, I'm like, this idea makes sense. I'm like, oh, yeah.
2: Well, and that's what Kate said to me when she first approached me. She's like, you know, we like to theorize. I'm sorry, I'm going to paraphrase you, Kate. You can correct me if I get you wrong. (laughs) But but she came to me and she said, you know, we theorize all the time about what's going on in readers' heads, Mm -hmm. but who actually turns around and asks readers to say in their own words what's Mm -hmm. happening for them? Mm -hmm. And so that was a really key point for us, was wanting to get readers' own stories of their reading and viewing, because of course um, Montgomery also has a huge viewership in terms Mm -hmm. of her adaptations, but to get fans to talk about their own perceptions of their reading and viewing experiences. And we're talking about the possibility of actually doing this for other authors after we finish this project. Would you guys be willing to share your LMM story with us? Sure. Kate, you want to go first on that?
3: Sure. Yeah. So I don't actually remember a time that I didn't know who Ellen Montgomery and Anna Green Gables were, but I think the kind of the big milestone in my memory is when I was eight years old and my family came to PEI and we visited Green Gables and I had my stack of Ann books with me. They're pretty ratty now. I mean, they probably looked a bit newer then. And I distinctly remember reading them, um, in, um, in the motel, um, where we were staying. And, um, definitely like the books and the Kevin Sullivan adaptation with Megan Follows were very much like intertwined in my mind but I was just beyond excited to be at Green Gables and for some reason The Haunted Wood um, so you'll you'll learn all about that soon when you read Anne Um, but The Haunted Wood um, where Anne makes up all these stories about about ghosts that live in The Haunted Wood to the point that like she can't even go through the wood and it's kind of one of these reckonings with her imagination gone wild that she has. Anyway, I was just so excited to be in The Haunted Wood. It was kind of breathless, like telling my family what happened where. It's amazing
2: that you were in one of in the, the place, most, too. Crazy. It's one of the most yeah. beautiful... Montgomery spots on the island, that's still one of my favorite places to go when I'm
3: there. Absolutely. And, you know, I've been, now that I live on PEI, I've been back to Green Gables several times, of course, and I think part of it is in the Haunted Wood. You get this feeling like Anne really could be around the corner. Green Gables itself is really tiny, and when you're in there, there's just other tourists there, too. I mean, it's this really special place, but I think in the Haunted Wood, you get more of a sense of being in a place that Anne could still be in, Um, and and it gets really beautiful
2: and if I may jump in and also a place Montgomery actually was because of course the Anne of Green Gables house is constructed in memory of you know Mm -hmm. what happened in the books but the woods surrounding it and up the street (laughs) and you know a lot of that area was area that Montgomery herself trod Mm
3: -hmm. because Mm -hmm. people
2: she knew lived there or lived adjacent to it
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and I still think, and I, I can talk more about this, the uh, Cavendish uh, site of Ella Montgomery, or the site of Ella Montgomery's Cavendish home, um, where Montgomery um, grew up, even though the house is not there, is such a special place, because you mm-hmm. still do really get that sense of it being a place where she was, and actually, the kitchen where she actually wrote Anna Green Gables is back there now, so you can actually see oh, really? the room she wrote, yeah, that just happened in the last year, so that's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, uh, that definitely, that trip to PEI really stands out in my mind. Um, and of course that eight-year-old would have been pretty excited to, um, to find out that, you know, 25 plus years later, um, that I would become the chair of um, Montgomery studies at the University of Prince Edward Island. And that, you know, was something that I never anticipated, even once I had done a PhD and was on the academic job market. My PhD was on Turn of the 19th century British writers. Uh so Jane Austen um and Emma specifically was um one of the chapters in my my PhD dissertation. But to end up so close to home and working on Montgomery um was yeah definitely a a dream come true. Like sometimes I yeah, I still kind of have to pinch myself and uh um <laughs> Yeah, so that's really yeah uh, that, that that's all how it started. And although I said like my you know my academic career was really focused on Jane Austen, my very first conference paper at the Northeast MLA in Boston um, was on was on Anne of the Island. So my Montgomery <laughs> academic roots uh, go go back far too.
2: And and now Kate, I have to say, I'm wondering if I might have been at that presentation that and not awesome. known it was you. <laughs> it's actually yeah. possible. Because yeah. I used to attend Nemla pretty frequently.
3: So maybe we have met. That's
2: a hoot.
1: <laughs> and then what about you, Trena?
2: What's your story? Okay. Well, my Montgomery story is that I was given a copy of Anne of the Island, which is the third book in the Anne series, mm-hmm. when I at when I was 18 and going away to university, because it's a book about a girl going away to university. And my parents bought it for me and they had never read it. Someone at a bookstore, had they, they went to the bookstore, because we love bookstores, and they went to the bookstore and they asked one of the book clerks, you know, at the good independent bookstore where they know all the books and um, and said, we want books about girls going to college because our daughter's going to college. And the book clerk handed them Anne of the Island* and so I received it and I took it away to school with me and uh, you know a few months into my first year I was getting frustrated with my schoolwork and wanted something to read for fun so I picked it up and I read it and I liked it quite well but that was kind of the end of it for the moment and then when I went home on holidays the Kevin Sullivan Anne of Green Gables was broadcasting on public television, and my parents were really into it, and they were watching it, and they said, oh, this is fun, you'll like it, come watch it with us. So as I was watching it, I realized, wait, these are the same characters from that book you gave me. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't known that <laughs> before that. And, um, and so then I immediately stopped watching, because I always like to read before I view So I immediately stopped watching and went back and read Anne of Green Gables, Anne of the, Anne of Avonlea, and then reread Anne of the Island. And then I was completely in love with Montgomery's writing, just completely in love. And then later went back and watched the Kevin Sullivan adaptation after I'd read the books and have mixed feelings about it. There are some things about it that I love and other things I'm not so crazy about, but, um, but I have to thank it in part for getting me to read the books. Um, And and like Kate, I also didn't know that I would become a Montgomery scholar. In some ways, being a Montgomery scholar is still, I I don't want to say a tangent, but it's still only one branch of what I do as a Mm -hmm. scholar, but it's a really fun branch. Um, Again, I did my dissertation on women regionalists and their use of oral storytelling styles. And I did include Montgomery in my dissertation because of the problematic nationalist frameworks I was looking at mostly uh, US women writers. But I always had her in mind as doing a lot of those same things that I had looked at with the U.S. women writers. And, um, and she just kept coming around. To different mm-hmm. projects I would do. It was like, oh, but this has an Ellen Montgomery component. This has an <laughs> Ellen Montgomery component. And, and it's, as Kate said, it, it's a really wonderful conference. I think the conference is part of what launched me as a scholar because I went to a, one of the very early ones. And it was just so much it was such a great mix of scholars and fans and very critically rigorous without being pretentious, mm-hmm. which I loved. And that's an annual conference and does it
1: move around or is it? Um, like...
2: Always at PEI when we're not sheltered okay. in place and um, every other year.
3: That's right. Yeah. So it's it's an even years.
1: So uh, one thing I'm really interested in knowing is, like, is there a particular sort of Ellen Montgomery, you know, piece of writing? So this could be anything. It could be a book, but also a journal entry or a letter. Is there something that you really love that you really, like, go back
2: to quite often? I have two, Kate. Okay.
3: Do you, you go, go first? Or? Okay. Yeah, go
2: ahead. Well, first of all, again, Anne of the Island. It was the first one that I read. Um, mm-hmm. But as as a scholar just that depiction of young women at university it just appeals to me every time and and it's such a great mix of them you know like having fun but also studying also really trying to succeed really driven and ambitious and it i was like that so i liked seeing that experience reflected but also in a kind of vintagey way you know turn of the century way and uh and so that one, but I also absolutely love the place where they live in Anne of the Island while they're at school. Mm-hmm. It's called Patty's Place. And it's a house that Anne rents with three of her friends. And then they have, one of them has a maiden aunt who comes to live with them to be kind of the live-in chaperone. And that is. Both how they get the house, which is this wonderful, it's depicted as this kind of wonderful kismet, this kind of everyday magic that Montgomery depicts so beautifully and that I believe in so strongly. But I also just loved that depiction of this community of women, this little household of scholarly women, all, you know, reading their books, but also getting worried about the price of butter. And, you know, I just, I love it.
3: I love Anna the Island too. I've actually written an article on Anna the Island because I my PhD thesis was on suburban space in London at the turn of the 19th century, and I started thinking about Patty's Place as this suburban space, like a cottage in the city. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm really interested in the urban aspect of Montgomery because of course that's not usually how we think about her but she um she she retired to Toronto she lived in Halifax twice as a student and a journalist um so I'm really interested in her urban dimensions and um I was going to say something else about that um Patty's anyway. place. Uh, uh, the, the community like, of women. Oh, but yeah. So um it so uh Anna the Island is set in Kingsport, which is a fictionalized Halifax, and they go to a college that's a fictionalized version version of Dalhousie, where I did my mm-hmm. undergrad. And I had no idea um when I was a student that it was kind of the same place. So that was really exciting years later to find out that Anne and I, and actually Ella Montgomery as well went to the same university. Yeah, that is yeah. fun. Oh,
2: that is cute.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I have one other piece of writing. Should I mention that, too?
2: or Yeah, okay. go for it. The, the other one, and, and it's one that often gets dismissed even by Montgomery scholars, but I actually love her piece called The Alpine Path the mm-hmm. story of my career. And Kate, correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong, I think it was originally serialized in a newspaper as a, like a one or two part newspaper article. That sounds right. I believe that's the case. I think it was originally serialized in a newspaper, but it's now published as a very, very slim volume of its own, where Montgomery talks about her writing experience in this beautifully positive way and and casts herself as a woman writer in this very uplifting style. And sometimes Montgomery scholars kind of rip on Alpine Path for being sort of too uplifting. It's sort of the public's face when she was often suffering in private. And even though that may be true, I actually see both sides of that the, you know, the public face and the suffering in private, the positive and the less positive as all still quintessentially Montgomery together. Mm -hmm. And, and I, it's so important to me that we not forget that she had that uplifting voice about herself, about her writing, Mm -hmm. about her pursuit of being a writer. And she casts it as a pursuit. It's not like these, there are other women as recently as 1950 and 1960 kind of saying oh I stumbled into this or I'm not a real writer or kind mm-hmm. of being very self-deferential about their work and I love that she is unapologetically unself-deferential about her work.
3: Mhm. Um, there's also some really great, like memories of her childhood, just biographical gems in the Alpine Path too. Um, I, oh, yeah, I, I, I was in Japan in December and was asked to come do a talk at the Canadian Embassy in Tokyo because there's just been a new Japanese translation of the Alpine Path, so they had the translator there speaking about her translation, and then um, I provided some more general oh. context. And uh, anyway, that was it. Was just that was also fascinating, right? Just to, to share that with this Japanese audience who's just so engaged in in Al- Montgomery and interested in any aspect of her. And okay. I did talk. Oh, yeah.
2: I, I was just going to ask, do you know if there was a particular reason why the Alpine Path was getting a translation? Is it just because they want as much Ella Montgomery as they can get, or did they happen to speak to whether there was something culturally appealing about that piece?
3: Yeah, I didn't get a sense of there being any particular reason like why this text, why right now, but basically everything has been translated right. or is being translated um, into Japanese. Um, and I, I did meet um Yuko Matsumoto, who's been trans doing new translations unabridged of all the of the, all the and books with an incredible amount of research. And oh, yeah, so- she's a rock star. She's amazing. But <laughs> she's it's a total incredible- Montgomery rock star. She really is like and it's incredible all that research that gets done, but is not accessible to an English speaking audience like that would be a neat project, right? Now, um,
1: are there any LM stories? That just resonate with you about her
2: personally. Well, and Kate, did you also have a piece of writing that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, yeah. Well,
3: I'll talk about her personally because I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm sure lots of people say this to you, like picking it, you know, a piece of writing is always so tricky. So I just kind of got Mm -hmm. to thinking about like our cultural moment right now, and um, and thinking about you know reading Montgomery, even promoting this project in the context of COVID nineteen, and you know, Trina had said at one point, you know how. uh, does it make sense to be really promoting the project hard when people just have so you know much stress mm-hmm. on them, their minds are other places, they're dealing with life and death, um, questions. And, you know, so this is something that we've been thinking about and, um, and so, you know, it's got me thinking about, you know, reading Montgomery in times of crisis, but also how she negotiated crises like World War I and the Spanish influenza in her own life and writing. So um, the Spanish flu, which obviously was hugely devastating, touched her in a really personal way. So her cousin, who is really her kindred spirit, Frederica Campbell. or Fred love
2: Fred. Campbell, <laughs> Yeah, I just, yeah, we love Fred. Fred is a yeah. great figure in the journals.
3: Yeah. yeah, and Montgomery really did love her. And actually, the house where she where Montgomery got married, um, that Turner referenced was where Fred would have grown up. And that's now the Anna Green Gables Museum in Park Corner, PEI. Um and, mm-hmm. and Montgomery had these really happy memories of being at the Campbells. Um, and, yeah, so it was just this really happy part of her childhood. So she and Fred Fred became really close as adults, but Fred Fred died of the of the Spanish um, flu. And this was a really dark turning point in Montgomery's life. I mean, there was a lot else going on. World War One had just ended. Um, her husband um, was suffering from... Various mental health issues. So, it, you know, there was, there was, she was dealing with a lot and still writing. And her writing was a way of working through Fred's death. And this is something that she did with a lot of other dark times as well. Um, and I, in, you know, we, it's, she, we might even say now like that she used, um, she used writing as a kind of therapy. Often she takes dark things that she describes in her journals and transforms them in the fiction and makes oh. meaning out of them.
2: Yeah, I want to jump in on that. Now. Oh yeah,
3: sure go. Okay, yeah, um, and so that's something that you know she does. She does with Fred's death. So Pat of Silverbush um, and other of, no- of Montgomery's novels um, has Pat's friend Bats die, and the language that Montgomery uses to describe. Uh, Fred's death really resonates with with Beth's as well. And uh, Montgomery writes this incredible 19 page entry in her journal, which is basically a, kind of this short biography of Fred's life, just packed with details about her life. And, you know, it was a way writing was a way of, of reliving moments um, mm-hmm. with, with someone who had passed as well. And then, interestingly, um, Rilla of Ingleside, which is a, a wonderful novel, I highly recommend it. Um, it's it's Montgomery's World War One novel, so it focuses on Rilla and and Gilbert's youngest daughter, and basically how she grows and changes during this kind of global conflict. And that novel is dedicated to Fred Campbell as well. Um, so I know, like you're, you know, anyone listening to this podcast doesn't need to be reminded of kind of you know the value of um, of literature um, in time ta- in dark times, but I think it's it's interesting that Montgomery's work can both be an escape and a comfort in dark times that we can go into that imaginative world but it's also a way of facing those dark times and working through them and thinking what the other side looks like
2: and you actually reminded me of what I was going to say earlier which is even though her books are incredibly upbeat and optimistic and soothing i'm i'm a bookstagrammer and i'm actually cre- i recently created a hashtag soothing books for stressful times and mm-hmm. montgomery is the quintessence of that in my opinion she just the books are, are massively again optimistic comforting soothing but they don't shy away from presenting tragedy there mm-hmm. is some form of tragedy in almost every one of her novels and um death is very prevalent in quite a number of them and often people that are already dear to the readers you know will pass away and so i think it's this really magnificent as kate was saying blend of helping us cope with tragedy she doesn't ignore them she doesn't shove them to the side but she helps us cope with them in and ultimately renewing and reaffirming way. Mm -hmm. Well, and I also want to just follow up on one other thing Kate said, if I may, which is I do think it's important um, as we talk about setting the fiction and the journals alongside each other to get different perspectives on the same event and to Mm -hmm. see how she brought the language of one to bear on the other. I think it's important to remember that she Edited her journals toward the end of her life, mm-hmm. and gave them to her son. Sort her son, right? She gave them to her son with yes, that's right. with the expectation that they might be published. Okay. So, I I always have a little bit of grain of salt when I read the journals, that I think. Even from a fairly young age, she might have had one eye on the eventual audience for them Mm -hmm. when she was writing them. And that, to me, that's an important aspect. When people look at her quote unquote private thoughts, they may not have been quite as private as we like to think, um, even Mm under her own mind.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, in some ways, it's another one of her works of art. Laura Robinson, who's this wonderful monk? I love scholar. Laura. Yeah, she's <laughs> so much fun and just and so smart. And she she gave me the idea that well, it might actually go the other way, right? That in a lot of cases, descriptions language were used in the novels first and then got transposed into the journal. Um, yeah, which yeah,
2: it totally depends on the passage. But we, I as far as we know, the author uh, was borrowing back and forth.
1: Yeah. Cir- I just wanted to circle back real quick to Prince Edward Island mm-hmm. because you guys got a few literary landmarks. I understand a mm-hmm. bunch. <laughs> yeah, and if Hannah and I are going to uh, set on on this trip, like you know, what what would we see there? Is there a home we can visit? Like, what, there's like five. Take us on a little journey. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, Kate mentioned Kate mentioned Park Corner earlier, which mm-hmm. was um, Montgomery's aunts uncle and aunt, uncle and cousins' home and but she lived there for a couple of periods didn't she Kate yeah did she when, stay with them like for extended periods a few she times she
3: did like at one point um she went there to teach her cousins uh, music lessons and that's a great story too because she her grandfather didn't want her going on to higher education he didn't see a need for women to be educated um you know beyond beyond kind of uh, public school. And uh, her grandmother disappears for a day um, to Park Corner and her grandmother never went anywhere. So it was kind of suspicious. And so, and Montgomery was raised by her maternal grandparents. Um, so the grandmother kind of disappears for a day and then comes back and announces that Montgomery will be going to Park Corner to teach the cousins music lessons. And Mary Rubio speculates that this was the grandmother's way of figuring out a solution to the grandfather not being willing to pay um, for Montgomery's education, Um, which is, you know, we don't really know what the grandmother's motivations were, what actually happened, but it makes... But we have reason to
2: suspect that there might have been something, yeah. Yeah. Female um, empowering so, going on
3: there. Exactly. exactly. And so, yes, yeah, so she, I, I think at that point she was there at Montgomery, was at Park Corner for three months. So, certainly and, spent extended periods there. And, and
2: Park, Park Corner is one of my favorite of the Montgomery sites because, again, it was a Montgomery family home. Uh, I mean, sorry, w- w- were they Montgomerys? I don't remember, were those the McNeils?
3: They were the Campbells.
2: The Campbells, thank you. But so it was the Campbell family home, but it was a home of Montgomery's relations, that, you know, people she loved, she stayed there. And many of the artifacts that informed the books and also Montgomery's life are still in that home. So, Mm -hmm. like, I got all excited about The Blue Chest of Rachel Ward because The Story Girl is actually one of my favorite Montgomery novels. It's a two-novel set, The Story Girl and The Golden Road, and that's actually one of my favorite of her works, Uh, well, the two of them together are my favorite one of my favorites of her works. but so it has artifacts from Montgomery's life that also figure in the novels and again it has the parlor where she was married so to me it that place and it, it has the view of what we think became the lake of shining waters and so to me that that's a spot that just feels infused with the montgomeryness <laughs>
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I already mentioned the McNeil homestead where Montgomery was raised by her maternal grandparents and the McNeils um, and Jenny McNeil in particular. Um, she They've just done a beautiful job of, of maintaining that site, of growing the flowers that Montgomery would have known there. The old apple tree is kind of miraculously still standing that there are pictures of Montgomery next to. Um, and and Jenny McNeil has done um, this amazing thing where she's pulled out quotes from Montgomery's journals and they're, they're scattered throughout the property in locations that are relevant to the quotes. So, um, yeah, so there's some, something really beautiful about, about that site as well.
2: I also like Ellen Montgomery's birthplace. It's a tiny yeah. little house, yeah. but it has um, it has a quilt on display that Montgomery herself made. It has her wedding dress on display. And it's the place where scholar Rhea Wilmshurst kind of accidentally found scads of Montgomery's short stories that she had pasted into scrapbooks that had been previously lost to republication until, was it what, like the 1980s, 1990s, mm-hmm. when she found these boxes full of scrapbooks. Mm-hmm. And so that was... Oh gosh, the dream. Right, exactly. And it was this huge, <laughs> you know, fantastic literary find to have mm-hmm. all of these stories that had fallen out of print suddenly back and available. Mm-hmm. And also to see Montgomery as a kind of visual artist, the way because she, yes. she created scrapbooks in this very creative way for a, many, many years of her life, and they're beautiful <laughs> to behold.
3: Mm hmm. Um, yeah. And we mentioned Mary Rubio and then Elizabeth Waterston, um, who, who edited the uh, selected journals together. But there's also Elizabeth Epperly and they're together. I think they're kind of the trio um, who got Montgomery Studies started. But uh, Elizabeth or Betsy Epperly, she has done a lot of work on the scrapbooks and on Montgomery's visual imagination generally. Yeah. Montgomery was also an avid photographer and mm-hmm. developed her own pictures and was interested in astronomy. So yeah, the visual, and the visual is so um, important in her in her fiction too. But I love that, that Montgomery's interests were so wide ranging and she kind of loved the, the latest tech of the time. Well,
2: and And one of my interest as a scholar is in what I call, or well, I'm not the only one that calls it, but I did it early, but um, in intermedia studies, like looking at the ways for me that writers incorporate other arts into their work. So the way that storytelling plays into print fiction, the way that film or photograph or paintings play into print fiction. And Montgomery is such a bountiful source of that. Because, yeah, she imagined herself as a visual artist in many ways, as well as being a writer. And the two clearly cross-pollinate. And, yeah, I also just want to say how much I love the work of Betsy Epperly. She is such a fantastic scholar. She does that thing that's so her books are very accessible, even if you're not a scholar, to just pick them up and read them. And yet they're incredibly intellectually rigorous. And mm-hmm. she she walks that tightrope tight so beautifully.
3: Absolutely. And she has a great Montgomery origin story, too.
1: How many stories have you guys collected so we're, far? We're just coming up on curious.
2: 100, right? We are, oh, but yeah. the project's only been in play for a few weeks, so we're it's going to be open till September. So we're really kind of aiming for thousands.
1: And what's it going to look like when it's all finished? Like what format? How do you yeah? How do you want to like publish? We're this?
2: picturing uh, a book and a website. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the website will probably have excerpts and possibly also some stories in as a whole. But um, but we're also planning to do a book with Kate and I, each taking different aspects of what we find from the stories and discussing them in more detail across a number of stories. But, Kate, is that how you're seeing it, too? <laughs>
3: yeah, that's it. Absolutely. Yeah. So we already kind of have like our, you know, our dream themes that we'd like to explore. So we'll just have to see what the mm-hmm. stories uh, reveal.
2: So many Montgomery fans share their Montgomery stories voluntarily and they show up in so many odd places. Like I was just recently rereading a wrinkle in time, which was one of my favorite childhood books. And there's an interview with Madeline Langell at the end of it, where she says she read Emily of new moon as a child and it made her want to become a writer. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like she volunteers her Ellen Montgomery origin story before this project ever existed, when, <laughs> whenever I watch You've Got Mail, and there's that scene in You've Got Mail where they're crying in the bookstore because it's closing, and the one woman says, You know, your mother gave me Anne of Green Gables and said, read it with a box of Kleenex. I'm like, the, You've Got Mail has an Ellen Montgomery origin story in it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's something, I don't know if it's specific to Montgomery, but it's something that Montgomery seems to foster that people want to share their stories of how they discovered her
3: hmm Yeah, absolutely. And um, and it's something too, like Trina's talked about how scholars often share their Ella Montgomery stories, like Betsy Epperly, for example, like mm-hmm. will share her Montgomery origin story in her scholarship, right? So it's yeah. this kind of blurring of the personal and the professional mm-hmm. um, that that I don't know seems natural.
2: And and I also think again, from from my perspective, it's kind of metafictionally so important because these scholars are perpetuating images of themselves as readers for young readers, which, again, mm-hmm. I think for women is so important that it's almost like they're passing on this legacy. Look, I'm a reader, so if you're a reader too, you're like me.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, if our audience wants to share their story... How do they do this? What, what format do you guys want? Like how long?
2: Kate, Kate, let's say the website. Kate, let's say the website together. You ready? It's all right.
3: Okay. Go. Your, your L. L- M.
2: Website. <laughs> <laughs> let's try it one more time. One. Let's go. One, two, three. Shoot.
3: Okay. One, two, three.
2: Your, your L- L-M- M- story. Uh, We're not going to do it at the same time. Okay. You just do it. <laughs>
3: I always want to add too many m's your l m your
2: l m m story dot com
3: and, and that's our social media handle too
2: yeah, and we're also hashtag your l m m story and we're at your l m m story on most of the major social media channels um, so that's where you go to share It can be as long or as short as you want as far as we know. We have not yet hit a maximum in terms of what the server will handle and. And some people have already done pretty long ones, so we think yeah. they can say as much as they okay. want. We, I, I was very careful to test when we were in the beta testing phase that if people want to type it out in a Word program and then copy and paste it over, that, t- that worked successfully for us every time we tried it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you don't have to, like, type into the text boxes while you're live on the site. You can write mm-hmm. it in advance.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, and if people want to do something more creative a video something visual um, or audio that they're welcome to do that too so if they go into the survey there's a way to upload their story there our email address is also available so um, basically if if, um, if people go to the um, to the survey you know we it's, or and to the website, we explain what the project's all about. And yeah, we're collecting Ella Montgomery stories, and then um, and there's an and FAQ
2: and there's a background so people can kind of read it around and get a feel for what we're doing. It, may I circle us back to the commodification of Anne? Because oh, right. oh, the first yeah. time I visited the island, there was also like a comedy troupe doing spoofs oh, of yeah. Anne that they called Ankenstein. Right and, um, I never saw it, but I did think that was a hoot that that existed. Sorry, I'm finding lots of things to be a hoot today. And, um, and, and there's, yeah, there's also part of the world of Montgomery is all the goofy kind of tourist product spinoffs. I mean, you can buy, yeah, like what's the best thing you can buy Anne of Green Gables potato chips. I mean, you can, when I taught Ellen Montgomery, I, I, I guess taught for the University of Prince Edward Island, their Ellen Montgomery course at the time. And um, and one of the things I did was I sent all the students home and I said, okay, find the weirdest like Anne tourist product you can and bring it in and we'll talk about them. And one student found an Anne of Green Gables ashtray where you basically stubbed out your cigarette on Anne's face. That was one of the most <laughs> disturbing, certainly. <laughs>
3: but you can also get raspberry cordial of course
2: oh yeah which is wonderful i'm surprised
3: and someone hasn't tapped into the uh the current wine um, market you feel like there'd be a craft beer th- th- there'd be craft beer potential there
2: um, well and there is isn't there Anne of green gables soda pop too if i remember correctly yeah that's
3: the raspberry cordial Oh,
2: okay because yeah, yeah i remember that from when i was there and i remember the potato chips which of course pei potatoes are wonderful and um I mean just everything you can think of dolls and Christmas ornaments and quilts i I kind of like that there are Anne of Green Gables quilts available lots of places because Montgomery references quilting so much in her work. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, one of it, it's not necessarily weird, but it's definitely kind of an offshoot product is um I spoke earlier about how I love Patty's place at Anne of the Island and in Patty's place in the book, she talks about these two China dogs, Gog and Magog, mm. that sit on either side of the fireplace. And now you can get replicas of those uh on the island lots of places. I get a kick out of that.
3: And that's perfect. That's very specific. That's, that's interesting too, because Montgomery grew up with dogs by the fireplace. And her right. dad her dad said when they hear the um, clock strike midnight, they'll jump up and I don't know, wag their tails or something. But like so the dogs she, come
2: to life. Yeah. They
3: will come to life. And so she was disappointed when she found out that wasn't actually true. But he, then he clarified, well, they'd have to hear the, the, the clock chime. So that was kind of his loophole that, of course, they're ceramic dogs. So they couldn't actually hear. But um, so she'd grown up with these dogs. And then when she was on her honeymoon um, in the UK, she wanted to buy um, her own set for her home, um, for her married home. And so she went through all these antique shops trying to find these dogs. So they're part of her own shopping experience too. Right.
1: And we are back. So I actually ended that interview on the commodification of Anne of Green Gables because commodification is something... That really goes hand in hand with literary tourism. And uh, I think we briefly mentioned it on our ep- our first episode with Amber, but um, it's something that I have been thinking about quite a bit as we continue on the series.
0: Yeah, well, I have a lot of feelings- about it. <laughs> <laughs> What's the
1: um like, I don't know, strangest product that you've purchased or you know, consumed at with an author or like at a literary tourism site so far?
0: I think the strangest product, the products that I think are the strangest, and they're not ones that I would personally buy, would just be like a, an I Love Wickham badge, mm-hmm. perhaps. Or like... Mm-hmm. Um, just Do you have anything any of those which at the Jane Center? Like, I like left the Jane Austen Center o- off of there. Like, I can't remember. So. Well, <laughs> I can't remember if we did sell them, but it's definitely... A thing that exists yeah right and i just think that sometimes you can get these like these little quippy things and it's like oh it's a cute badge yeah. and then you wear it and then i see it and i'm like oh you're your team older man who runs away with a young girl who doesn't know better to steal her fortune right. and to absolutely ruin her life excellent yeah in some circumstances make her pregnant <laughs> like oh, right like team willoughby cool badge and i just look at it and i'm like okay i mean I get, you're either pro this stuff, in which case we're not going to get on, or you've not thought about this badge critically. Right. <laughs> so, but I, I do wonder if part of that is, and we were talking about this earlier and this didn't cross my mind, but also I worked at the Jane Austen Center. So I wonder if that's why I have an aversion to literary souvenirs. Yeah, because you were surrounded by them. You were you were selling them. You were part of the this whole system, Hannah oh I know but I used to watch people buy it and I used to be like Mm-mm, you don't need that. so yeah I don't know it's really hard because like especially since doing the show um I get given like a lot of stuff like a mm-hmm. lot of Jane Austen coloring books um it's not it's not my bag it's not it's not for me and it's for someone but it's not me and what I would like is and this is what I always leave gift shops with is like a new biography about a person especially if it's like how their life intersects with the life of another author Mm -hmm. which believe it or not I think that gift shops are the best bookshops for like this kind of niche subject absolutely right yeah incredible way better than like trying to find stuff on Amazon or anything like that Mm -hmm. like if you go to a museum just um yeah actually actually look at the books because they're they're usually really well curated and that's a a great thing about the Jane Austen Center in Bath is it's it's got great books in there Mm -hmm. um but I would I would rather like have um a reproduction or like a facsimile of Beatrix Potter's journal when she was 15 oh that'd be cool like yeah um like a scan a scanned manuscript of a book that I love or something Mm -hmm. like that something where it's like actually kind of coming back to the writing or their career or Rather than, you know... I don't know. There's uh, just, rather than a, there's cash grab, a stuff like Really, we
1: just want so- it to be thoughtful, I think, is what you're saying. There's only
0: so many tea towels you can have.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Although every time I go to Buckingham Palace, I buy like 10 more.
0: <laughs> don't know what's wrong that with me. Buckingham, that Buckingham Palace shower cap I gave Sam for Christmas doesn't even fit on his massive head. <laughs> oh, no. So there you go. The one time I was like, <laughs> this is kind of funny. Doesn't fit on his huge, massive skull. Here's the thing. So for the Brontes, like all
1: of the alcohol that's associated with the Brontes, I have really oh, abso- mixed yeah, feelings like, about, absolutely. Right? like, I mean, I've had all the Bronte beer, right? The Charlotte, the Emily, that the ale and is delicious. the Branwell was my favorite. <laughs> it was a delicious beer, I have to say. Um, so, you know, I'm am part of the
0: problem, <laughs> but, but it's not all right. <laughs> it's not all right to name your al- alcohol after the Brontes. Those Bronte sausages though. Do you the remember? The Bronte sausages we those? were very good. And it was like the three <laughs> sisters and a branwell sauce. Mm. Well, I think <laughs> it was just
1: hard too, because it's like, you know, for the Bronte's, you don't have as much stuff, right? And you want to support. And like we were in Howarth, yeah. and it's like, yes, we're in Howarth. We're, you know, at a pub. Yes, I want a Bronte gin and tonic. And then while you're having it, you're like, okay, this Bronte gin, very nice. But then you start thinking about Tenant of Wildfell Hall and, you know, exactly. Branwell's demise.
0: And it's um, a very sticky, odd situation not just, to be in. Not just Tenant of Wildfell Hall, but Charlotte Brontë's reaction to her sister writing and publishing yeah. Tenant of Wildfell Hall. And it's just, yeah, it's one of those things where you're drinking it and you're like, this is a nice stout, but honestly, I don't know. It's just just okay. like, hey, Anne,
1: what would you think Sorry. about this? Just wild, just kind of wild. It's but just, yeah, so, I mean, I'm part of... The problem but um yeah i'm trying to sort of like take a critical eye to what i consume what sort of literary products i consume
0: i will consume all edible literary
1: mm. you're oh, that. For that you're in for that I am,
0: I am totally on board with like mrs bennett's cream tea or whatever mm-hmm. it is like you want to sell me that jam tart you're up for that mr darcy's jam tart i'll do it it's fine because, like, I can eat it. I'm going to enjoy a jam tart whether or not it's like Mr. Wickham's naughty devilish delight. Because <laughs> once it's it's gone, right? I've eaten it. It's disappeared. Yeah. It's in my stomach, and it's going to taste good, whichever character you've named <laughs> it. <up. laughs> I love those. I love those Brontë sausages. They're I will great. remember eating those delicious sausages and that delicious brandy gravy <laughs> <laughs> for the rest of my life. For The rest of my and that's the memory. Yeah. But like, I don't necessarily need. A mug with a picture of them on it. Well, you know what? But the memory of those sausages will... You, it just carries me through some of my dark days. You might be on to something. Because I feel like Valette Cafe. Because it was just so pastry-based. I like It gave me even more positive feelings about the book. Oh, the Valette Cafe is the best thing about <laughs> Valette. You can get fried breakfast there.
1: <laughs> okay, listeners. I want to hear, like... Or I want to see if you still have it. If you haven't eaten it already. What's, like the strangest sort of literary product
0: that you have or have consumed, let us know. Oh, w- highs and lows. Like if there's something and you're like, I bought this 15 years ago, it's still bringing, prove me wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. If it's still bringing you joy, I want to know about it. Yeah, show it to us. And if there's something you really regret, like, <laughs> I did not need this copper, like, one and a half times scale model of dripping shirt Colin Firth I mean you're f-ing wrong <laughs> but I'm interested <laughs> to hear about we want to hear about it we want to hear your stories your literary product I don't know how stories you got it home.
1: yeah let us know send us pictures <laughs> hit us up on the internet Hannah where 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 is the internet what is it how do how do you use it how do you log on Oh, did you hear that? Yeah, I did. Is there a it's monster in there? Street.
0: My uh my streets become crazy street. We've had two fires, a traffic accident, and a swarm of wasps in the last like month and a half, like since the lockdown. It's what living on a main road does <laughs> to you. Um But I don't live on the main road. I live on the internet. We all live and coexist on the internet these days. You can find us in our little allotted portion if you take a stroll down Instagram. And Twitter Street, Mm. you'll find us at Bonnets at Dawn. If you turn right onto email, you'll find us at Bonnets at Dawn at gmail.com. And if you just go over the bridge, keep going, pass the roundabout straight over that, go left at the museum, you'll find us on Facebook, Bonnets at Dawn. That sounds good. And then there's like a little a buzzer you've got to like push the button and then we'll ask you a couple of questions Mm -hmm. like a secret password and if you answer those correctly then we'll let you in and it's like a gated community (laughs) and it's beautiful the neighborhood sounds lovely it's up an alpine path
1: (laughs) (laughs) speaking of alpine path we will drop this little nugget um alpine path was mentioned in the interview it is an essay by ellen montgomery We love it and have feelings about it, and we have posted it in our Facebook group. We can post it again, but we'd love it if you guys would read it and give us your thoughts as well, and we will be back to to talk about that later. So, bye. Bye.